Welcome to the Retzel Health Law Hotspot. Health Law Hotspot is a podcast for physicians and health professionals that covers the legal issues and trends that affect the healthcare industry. Everyone, welcome to the Health Law Hotspot. I'm Erica Adler, shareholder and leader of the healthcare practice at Retzel and Andrus. Today, I'm joined by Ezra Simon. Ezra is a healthcare investment banker and investor. He's co-founder and managing partner of Physician Growth Partners, a boutique sell-side investment banking firm focused on representing independent medical groups in transaction with private equity. Ezra and I have had the opportunity to work together as we both represent physician practices selling to private equity, and I thought it would be great to have him with us today. So, we could probe some of the questions that many physicians have about the process and recommendations that Ezra may have for those that are considering selling their practices. So welcome, Ezra. Great to have you here. Awesome, Erica. Thanks for, uh, thanks for having me. Excited to, uh, excited to be here. I've seen this podcast out there and appreciate the opportunity to be here. So thanks for being here. And what we really want to kind of get at today is you're working with physician practices all over the country, different types of specialties. What do you think private equity is really looking for in a practice partnership? Yeah. Um, look, I think it, you know, at a high level, every one of these private equity strategies is obviously a little bit different in terms of specialty or, or geography or, or sort of what they're focused in on. But when we do our work, um, I think we find most people are looking for really good practices that have really strong reputations as, as sort of number one. I think that's always the first checkbox is, are we partnering with somebody that you know, ultimately we can build around, people know, and has a great reputation. I think that's part one. I think the other side of it is, is the partnership one that, you know, can grow into the future. I think a lot of people think about private equity and they're like, oh, like I will just do this, you know, when I'm 67, I've got three years left and I'm done. And I think, you know, yeah, there's definitely a transaction to take place there. But when we think about how to actually maximize value and what people are looking for. Private equity groups want to partner with great practices with tangible growth opportunities and an opportunity to help that shareholder team grow bigger, faster, stronger, better in a market. Um, and I think, you know, th there's definitely two types of practices. There's folks that have been doing the same, you know, business for the last 20 years, and this is a succession plan, right? And this is how do we think about the next five or seven years? That's sort of one group. And, and yeah, that's interesting. But I think what gets people really excited is a practice that has providers in the recruitment pipeline, new locations that have opened in the last couple of years, you know, a management team that actually understands the market and the business and is looking more for support to supplement what they're doing in the market. Maybe it's, hey, we could really use help negotiating with payers because nobody will talk to us. Or hey, you know, if we just had more scale, we could go to the number one supplier of our implantables that we use every day, and maybe we could save some money. It's really looking for those value-added opportunities that somebody who is bigger can be helpful with versus, hey, here's a lifeline and a practice that has five years left before we need to go figure out what to do with it. Right. And so there's different kinds of private equity 
some of them really do just want to kind of acquire practice, maybe acquire a few and bring them together. And, um, and they employ the doctors and the doctors work for them. And it's kind of a very traditional sounding private equity. You and I have seen private equity kind of change a little bit over the past few years, where they really are looking for more of a partnership model, where they're working with doctors. Um, what is your sense of, you know, what doctors are really looking for now? I, I think there's doctors that maybe looking for one or the other. And surprisingly, they're both appealing. It just depends on the particular physician. Would you agree with that? So I think, look, every everybody that I work with, and I'm, I'm sure um, your experience is, is, is similar to this, everybody's looking at one of these transactions for different reasons, right? Um, I think from my experience, you know, it's so easy to sort of focus in on the initial transaction in terms of what the headline valuation is, right? And just focus in on how much money it is. Most of the transactions that I work on have a piece of continued ownership, right? Um, whether it's at the local level and, and you own a piece of the, the market or it's at the national level and you own a piece of a portfolio of practices, right? And so what a lot of people like lose sight on is, you know, if you have a $10 million transaction and, and let's say 20% of that is gonna be continued ownership, that's a $2 million investment you're making in another company, right? That's, you know, that's as big as a lot of people's 401ks and, and certainly probably bigger than most people have invested in Apple stock, right? And so we see a lot of people that they focus in on what they're getting at close and they sort of ignore this idea that they have a huge investment in the continued growth and viability of the business. And so we see a lot of people that don't really seek to make sure they're partnering with somebody that can empower them, help them be successful, in three years versus just at the closing table. And I think, you know, we're big on it, and I know you are too, is really helping our clients try and meet with five or six different people, right? To actually get a sense for who brings what to the table with respect to what that particular practice is looking for in a mm -hmm. partnership. Because at the end of the day, like, you know, there's using eye care as an example, there's 30 plus eye care companies across the country that would love to partner with your practice. And I think at the end of the day, they're all going to be successful to varying degrees, right? If you look at eye care partners, they've gotten a couple of bites at the apple versus other groups that are still waiting for their second bite, right? And so I think it's hugely important to, you know, evaluate the deal in totality, but really focus in on what the track record of the group you're partnering with is against the needs that you have as a practice. Right. And I think what I was trying to get at really is that some doctors really do just want to sell and, and work for private equity. They don't all want to help grow the practice or be a leader. So I also think it's important to know what that partner is looking for, right? As you mentioned, maybe you only got a few more years, you want to get the purchase price, you want to work, you're willing to maybe supervise and train staff, but then you want to be done. Whereas somebody who's at a different place in their career, they really want to partner, they want to get that rollover money, they want to help start up new location. So it's also making sure that it's a match for you and the vision of that particular buyer. But absolutely agree that you very much want to compare what are different buyers bringing to the table. And it's not just about the multiple or the purchase price. It's about the vision, which you describe really well. Um, and I think that, you know, really only if you see the different choices, can you make an informed decision as a doctor about what the right fit is for you? Yeah, look, I think I think that's spot on. I meet people all the time that have met with one person and they're sure that this is the right person that they want to partner with. And what we ultimately find is, you know, when we when we 
do our job, which is to run a process and, and help people see everybody. Ultimately, where we find a lot of the time is the person that they started with isn't necessarily the person they ended with for all of the reasons that you said. Like if you're an older physician and you want to partner with somebody that's going to take over the management of your practice, right? All of a sudden you find yourself talking to somebody that's going to lean on you for the growth. That's a totally different situation and setting up that life after the transaction right. in a totally different way. Absolutely. So when you're looking to sell, aside from finding the right, the shared culture and shared vision, what else should physician practices be thinking about when they're trying to position themselves to be appealing in the market? What kind of yeah. things should they be planning for ahead of time? Yeah, look, I, I think it is... Uh, buyers are pretty sophisticated, right? And I think that there's a lot of people that we talk to that are saying, okay, well, I'm going to wait to do a deal until next year, because right before I do that deal, um, I'm going to um, cut these support staff members, and I'm going to make these changes, and I'm going to totally change how we're contributing to everybody's retirement fund so that our bottom line looks better, right? And they think that, okay, great, the bottom line looks better, and, and nobody is really looking into what that actually means with respect to the business. And so we meet all these people that are like, I'm going to change everything that made staff members stick with us for a long time or made patients love us or, or put our presence out there in the marketplace. And we're, we're not going to make these bad. people try and game the system. Right. And I think ultimately there's a balancing act, right? If there are opportunities to clean up different pieces of the business that make logical, good business sense, we're huge advocates of doing that. Right. And I think where we sit in the market, we're able to get credit for those things ongoing throughout the process. So from my perspective, if you, you know, used to run your, um, your back office with seven billers and four months ago, you downsized to five because that's what the needs of the business are. We don't see people needing to wait 12 months for that change to work itself through the financials. Our whole job and, and really, you know, in advocating for folks in the market, it's all about presenting the business as an ongoing basis on a normalized cost structure, right? So we get credit for all those things. So I think this idea of totally repositioning the business the day before you go to market is, I think, a little bit, you know, kind of more than meets the eye. What I do think people are really looking for are practices that have great reputations in the market. And I said this earlier, great reputations in the market and tangible growth opportunities. So when I talk to people all the time, you know, they're talking to me about, well, I could recruit this provider. We're just sort of waiting for private equity to figure out what they want to do. We really love this location. Like we should definitely have a, have a, a, um, a practice location over there. This would be great for us. Or, or if we, you know, as soon as we do private equity, we want to add this service line, right? So I look at things like that and say, look, if these are great business opportunities for you and they're really that tangible, and you're able to execute on those things, and they make sense for the business in absence of a private equity discussion, go ahead and start making progress towards executing on those things, right? In the market, similar to getting credit for a normalized cost structure, if you'd brought on a provider two months ago, we're able to get credit for that provider as if they're at maturity. And by the same token, if you expanded your hours to, let's say, add nights and weekends, you know, four times a month, whatever that looks like, we're able to get credit for that change within the business. And so the exercise becomes what is real, achievable, demonstrable growth that's occurring within the business that you can execute on and, and you're going to do whether or not you do a private equity deal. And, and that's one bucket of things that we're huge fans of, right? If you have great business decisions that are going to have a creative return on equity, go do those things. But for the things that are more 
call it smoke and mirrors or outside of the normal course of what you'd actually be doing, we encourage people to take a step back and make decisions that are good for the business in five years and after their private equity transaction. You have no idea if that transaction is going to go through. You have no idea if the valuation is going to be right. You have no idea if you're going to find a partner that works. And ultimately, if you're making decisions and expectations of those things and those don't actually transpire and you don't do anything, where does that leave you? Right. I think those are great comments. And a lot of times doctors will, you know, start talking with people, receive an LOI and absolutely right. They'll start thinking, well, what should I have changed? The ideal situation is if, if it's possible is up to, you know, six months or a year before start working your, with your financial advisors to find out, you know, what do you, what do your financials look like? I've had doctors who for whatever reason, the the way their accountant has kept their books and records, they um, the private equity when they come in can't even access it, like technologically speaking, right. you know. So they can't even do an assessment of it, or they've just been doing carrying expenses that are just like inappropriate and shouldn't be on there. There's a lot of cleaning up to do. Maybe there is some business equipment or something that they acquired they haven't properly treated and it affects their financials. So I know so many people say to me, God, we wish we could just get in there like 12 months before, six months before, just clean things up and then be ready if and when the practice is ready. So I always encourage everyone who's listening here and any of my clients, you know, if you think down the road, it is a possibility that you may ever want to sell, then start looking, we're talking with your advisors now about what things look like, how, how do they come across, what needs to be cleaned up so that you're not scrambling at the last minute, um, which can cause concern for a buyer sometimes. Yeah, look, I think that that's right on. I think any good... You know, our, so my entire job is building relationships with physicians and being ready for them when they're ready, right? And usually it's not, hey, I, I met you last week and we're ready next week. That's not, you know, the way people make decisions about, you know, call it selling their business. It's not the way that goes. A huge part of my job is building relationships with people three years before they're ready to do anything and helping them do exactly what you said, right? Take a look at the financials, help them understand what people are going to be looking for, help them evaluate sort of the merits of those different growth opportunities that may be considering so that, look, you know, you might be 55 years old trying to complete a transaction when you're 60 so that you're working until you're 68 or something like that or whatever your timeline right. looks like. The whole idea here is getting input from the right professionals, building the team the right way, right? You know, Erica, your side on the legal, somebody that is active in the market and very well-versed in what buyers are looking for from a legal and structure perspective, right? So that to your point, you can proactively get in front of things like deal structure, employment agreements, cleaning up the organizational documents within the business. And on my side of the house, looking at the financials and really underwriting where you sit today versus how the market would look at the opportunity. At the same time, who are those participants? What is that deal going to look like? And helping our clients look at it from a, okay, the deal makes sense in three years. What am I doing between now and then to set it up the best way I can for myself? And good advisors do that. Good advisors build the relationship and, and give as much free advice as possible so that when the time is right, they're there. Absolutely. I, I totally agree. And I love the concept of a team, which is something I've talked about before. You want to surround yourself with people who are familiar with physician practices that provide you with that advice that are there to guide you through the process. And I know you and I have talked about, 
you know, one of the frustrating things is when a uh, physician practice comes to you and either has already signed their letter of intent or, you know, suggest that they're just going to go ahead and do it and then we can work on negotiating right. things. And, you know, that is just the wrong, wrong, wrong mindset. So much time and effort goes into that LOI. And I tell my client, you negotiate the deal when you negotiate the LOI for a couple of reasons. One is that later on, you often get the response, well, you know, it wasn't in the LOI. So no, right? Uh, secondly, you want to make sure that the deal is the right deal for you. And that means asking all the right questions before you spend the time and money. I mean, I know you're going to spend time and money negotiating the LOI, but you're going to spend a lot more doing the deal document. So you want to be very thoughtful about it. And sometimes you have to walk away if the answers aren't what you're looking for. There could be another buyer out there that has the right answers. And to me, that's something that I, I have found very frustrating, you know, when doctors do that. And, um, you know, just because they don't know any better, or they're excited, they don't want to take the time to talk to someone, or they're getting pressure from the private equity with a deadline to sign, which usually means nothing at all other than an effort so, to move things along, right? So, so I, my, my view on that is even maybe like one click, like higher level. The, the buyers on the other side of the table are professional investors that have been doing this for a long time. Their job is to, at the end of the day, they have a fiduciary duty to the company that they work for, which is a private equity group or a private equity backed um, roll up company of women's healthcare practices. They have a fiduciary duty to get a good deal. Now, it should be a deal where everybody feels good, right? But they have a fiduciary duty to do the best they can for their shareholders, not for you. And so when you do these transactions, you have all of the leverage in the world until you sign that LOI. At that point, you're asking somebody else for a favor. Buyers view the LOI as the framework of the transaction. And so when you have the right team, the exercise is using that LOI to negotiate 85% of the transaction upfront. If you own real estate, what are the terms of that lease? If you have employees, can we assign the employment agreements or are they going to require everybody sign new documentation? What are the non-competes you're going to sign up for in the purchase agreement? What rights do you have to maintain your clinical autonomy, right? What are the representations and warranties you're agreeing to make? What are you still responsible for after the transaction closes if something happens to your business? Everything is negotiable until you sign that LOI because you give away your exclusivity to talk to other people, right? And at the same time, you start spending money as a seller post LOI. So what do we see all the time? Hey, I have this LOI, I signed it, now what? Well, unfortunately for, you know, we're not in that good of a position to help. You should still get great legal counsel and all of those things if you're gonna proceed with that transaction. But if you get in front of a group like us or Erica, in advance of signing that LOI, you've got the opportunity to benefit from folks that understand where to push and where to pull in these different documents to ensure that you're getting a fair shake, right? And that's hugely important because at the end of the day, you know, you're making all of the investment in the transaction as soon as that LOI is signed. You start spending money on, on legal, your lawyers, your accountants, et cetera, et cetera. Everybody starts spending money and running at that transaction. Any deviation you want, you're asking effectively for a favor. That's the huge difference. Right. Absolutely. I agree with you and can't emphasize this enough. Another thing is, you know, that I find the LOI really important for is 
um, often there are things that you could ask the buyer to pay for that you don't even know till you've spoken to your team. And, and a lot of times when that LOI sign, and then we try and go back because we know that buyer has paid for certain things in the past, whether EMR transition, maybe it's malpractice tail or something like that. And they're like, oh, that wasn't negotiated in the LOI. There's nothing more frustrating than knowing that, you know, your doctors are uh, not going to get the best deal possible. And so sometimes we may even say, okay, well, we're just going to wait for the exclusive period to end. Um, and then we can start talking again, or you can talk to us now, you know, so sometimes we try and maneuver, of course, to still try and get those things, but it really ties our hands exactly as you described to, to get the best deal sometimes, you know, so. The, the other thing that we see in, in sort of part and parcel with this is the idea that a buyer is going to calculate your EBITDA for you. Right. And, it, you know, and we're going to say, okay, this is what it is. Well, the buyer calculated it. It, it, it's the same idea, right? If somebody comes and offers you a million dollars for your house, maybe a million dollars sounds like the right number, but if, if the if the house is actually worth $3 million, then what, right? And so if you don't have somebody on your side of it, and I'm, I'm talking about, look, the accountant's one thing, the accountant who has, you know, from inception insight into how you've run that business and the nooks and crannies of those financial statements, you, you certainly need that, right? But the other side of it is what will the market value? Right. And how does the market look at financial performance? So to me, I alluded to it earlier. It's like the market gives credit for, for normalized financials. It gives credit for growth. Right. And so what we see all the time is a buyer calculated my EBITDA. What do you get? You know, how are you going to help me? Right. Well, the real question is, what are you getting credit for? What, what are they actually using? To me, it's not about what you did last year. To me, it's not even about what you did last year if you add back the cars that you ran through the company or the other personal expenses. Right. It's about what you're doing over the next 12 months with respect to changes in the cost structure and changes to the revenue profile of the business and ensuring that at the end of the day, as that three or four months passes between the date that that LOI is signed and the transaction is supposed to close, that the performance of the business matches the financial profile in that EBITDA calculation. If so, if you open a new office and you're seeking credit because of the demand in the business and the revenue is creeping up as a result of the investment you made and paid for, you have full right to get credit for that investment within your enterprise value. Right. Absolutely. There's so many little nuances that, you know, even your, your, your practice manager you know, who a lot of doctors highly rely upon to look at the numbers and say if it's a good deal. I mean, just like you would go to a doctor for their expertise as a specialist, if there was something wrong with you, this is for many people, this is their entire life that they have built here, their practice. And you really do want to talk to a specialist before you even think about selling. And that's really where team members like us come in. Um, so I can't emphasize that enough. There's so much you could be leaving on the table if you're not getting good advice, basically. Yeah, and you, and you don't want to be, look, you don't want to be anybody's um, first experiment. Um, everybody has, and we see this all the time, right? Like everybody has a lawyer that helped them with the employment agreement, with the lease and the operating agreement amongst right. the shareholders. And the first inclination is, why would I trust anybody other than Steve, the attorney, to help me do this transaction? The reality is, if Steve hasn't done you know, 50 transactions where private equity groups are partnering with physicians and an understanding of all of the different nuances that take place, not only typically in a transaction, 
but also has the breadth of experience to say, look, I've done 20 of these in the last 12 months across sizes and specialties and with different private equity groups. And you don't have the opportunity to benefit from somebody that is not seeing everything for the first time. Somebody that lives, sleeps, eats, and breathes private equity transactions with physicians, you are leaving something on the table. And the same thing goes on the advisory side. I mean, we hear it all the time. Me and my lawyer and my accountant, like we've got this. The reality is right. if you haven't done 20 or 30 of these transactions and, and negotiated with all of these different firms, you have no idea what market is in terms of what you should be asking for in this type of transaction. Like we tell people all this, like, look, most people will do this one time and maybe you sell real estate and maybe you've got some other startups you're in a bit. Maybe you have stuff like that and that's great. But selling your primary engine of compensation, right? The thing that you arguably went to school for for a long time, spent a long time building and is probably you know, your, your main income stream. You only get to do that once and you only get to negotiate that once. You only get to price it once. You better do it right. Period. Especially Absolutely. because most of the time in these transactions, you're in that deal for a period of time after closing, whether it's three years, five years, whatever that looks like. If you don't set it up the right way and benefit from people that do this every day within physician practice, private equity work, you have no clue what the relationship's right. actually going to look like. Absolutely. Well, that's great advice, Ezra. I mean, we could talk about this forever because I know you and I do these deals. There's so many examples of things that have gone right and things that have gone wrong in every deal. Um, but all of that is experience that you know we try to bring to our current clients so that they get the benefit of our past clients' uh, missteps or things they tell us they wish they'd done differently, et cetera. So um, just to wrap things up, are there any final pieces of advice that you would want to share? No, look, I think uh, my, my big takeaway on this is that the good professionals that do what we do, you know, candidly will tell you most of what they know for free because they exist by seeing these good transactions occur. And frankly, whether you work with me or you work with somebody else that does what I do, I, I could really care less, right? The thought process is you have one shot to do this and it, it, it's a ounce of prevention beats a pound of cure. 100% of the time, right? And so if you're looking at any of this stuff and, and, you know, get the right help, right? Ask the right questions. And if you're going to do this, make sure that you're doing this with somebody that has a track record, that understands what you're doing, and you're negotiating this in a way where your transaction team is, is running down the bases for you, period. Well, that's amazing advice. And this is Ezra Simon from Physician Growth Partners, and we're going to share his information. So for anybody listening who has questions, feel free to reach out to him. You call, email him. And if you're thinking about selling your practice, we hope you listen to this advice and take it seriously, whether you're working with us or someone else. The idea is that we care about physicians, we care about their practices, and we hope that you know some of this makes a connection with what you're planning and, and helps you uh, think about things clearly before you uh, take any further steps to sell. So thanks again. This is the Health Law Hotspot. If you want to catch some of our other podcasts, you can go to ralaw.com and we'll see you next time. Thanks so much for joining us. The Retzel Health Law Hotspot is made available by the firm and its attorneys for educational purposes and to provide general information, not to provide specific legal advice. 
Use of the Retzel Health Law Hotspot does not create an attorney-client relationship between you and the firm or any of its attorneys. The Retzel Health Law Hotspot should not be used as a substitute for competent legal advice, and you should contact an attorney in your state about any legal needs or questions you may have.